Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, I'm very excited about this. I have been submerged, much like the city itself, in Atlantean lore and its place in pop culture. I know that you've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. Right off the top, I would like to inform the listeners that this could be a two-parter. It could be a three-parter. There's a lot to talk about. And we want to make sure that we keep these episodes not succinct, but you know, within an hour, hour and a half. So we'll go until it's time for our tips, tricks, tools, and imaginative challenges. But Chris, how are you doing this afternoon? David, I'm I'm good, thank you. Well, uh, and I I'm ex- I'm so excited about this uh, as Gus is. Yeah, go Gus. Uh, I want to just leap right in with a a quotation that uh, I found from W.H. Auden, who I think is a poet that uh, every once in a while he just uh, really finds the groove. And here it is. Unless you are capable of forgetting completely about Atlantis, you will never finish your journey. And I think we can hear some wonderful echoes of the notion of Byzantium, uh, W.B. Yeats' famous poem, Sailing to Byzantium, the, uh, the idea of cold mountain. You know, there is no way to get to cold mountain within the Asian traditions. There are many different ways of saying this. So I, I hear in that word Atlantis, and I think we all do, a kind of strange harmonic that really rings and echoes and resonates across cultures and years. Uh, But I love that. Unless you are capable of forgetting completely about Atlantis, you will never finish your journey. Hmm. That is interesting. Because I I can't forget about Atlantis. It's too cool. It's too cool. Yeah. Uh, Before we dive in... Chris has already given me my five words. We start off the top of the show with Chris giving us an aphorism and a made-up band, followed by my imaginative challenge. So, Chris, what is your made-up band for this episode? Okay. They're the Rugged Individuals. Okay. And their their first album is How to Chew Nails. (laughs) That's But the kicker... Yeah, well, no, but the kicker is they are a really, they were originally a really girly ex-cheerleader band from Santa Barbara, California, but they had uh, a traumatic incident in Ojai, California, and that becomes part of the mythology of the group as they begin to uh, leak details of what happened on their Vision Quest camping trip disaster just up the road in Ojai, California. They now... Uh, present as gay bears dressed in the exact same fluorescent tartan plaid uh, lumberjack shirts, a really fierce, blinding yellow and black. And their uh, repertoire is sort of uh, harvested from their cheerleading days, country music, heavy metal, and strange rap versions of self-help advice. So the rugged individuals and 
their debut album is How to Chew Nails. Wonderful. And of course, there's a couple of different ways of thinking about nails there. <laughs> Here's my aphorism. Uh, people know I'm, I'm really interested in arithmetic and math still. Uh, I think there's some wonderful clues to reality that have been found there. If uh, two points in space can determine a line, that's a, a very important concept. My aphorism is, beware the moment when a single point creates a line. Hmm. A little bit uh, obtuse perhaps, but if we think about that a little bit, I wonder if that doesn't say a lot about the climate, the social climate in response to uh, oh, I the media, yeah. etc. I, I see what you mean. It, it appeared to me first as a koan-like sound of one hand clapping type aphorism. But when you put it that way, we do have a bunch of single points that are becoming lines. Yeah. Well, I, I glad, I'm glad you mentioned sort of the Zen sort of, out, you know, because it, it is, it wants to have that uh, initial appearance. But then as we fall into the tiger trap a little bit, it becomes clear that that is sort of something that's happening quite literally and mysteriously. You know, because it's not really possible, and yet it is a fundamental reality day to day where many single points think they're lines, you know, mm -hmm. which is uh, uh, a bit disturbing. Um, but on the subject, or related to, because there are so many connections with the idea of Atlantis, I have an imaginative challenge for you, which uh, you're free to go global, you're free to go local. And the distinction between local and global is an oscillation that we have continually prosecuted across the series. And that's one of the key investigative points of the whole Lost Explorers idea is, you know, what distinguishes local and global? What a curious dichotomy. What would happen if the population of the world, which we estimated about 7.8 billion today, was 10% of that. I mean, we all know so much of what our so-called reality is, is physically determined. It has a lot to do with the size of human beings in terms of bodies, the fact that we're not 20 feet tall, you know? Mm -hmm. The tallest is really maybe eight feet, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, very unusual. Uh, we, we have a certain uh, mass, generally speaking, that may be, you know, changing. Um, we have a certain geographical distribution, but certainly the numbers, we are looking at a very different global scenario, uh, not just because we're aware of, of each other through uh, communications and transportation, uh, that certainly helps, but, but, you know, it's just, it's a plain fact. Uh, there are a lot of us, and there, yet there aren't 20 billion of us. You know, there's something about this moment in, in time that has a, you know, a specialness to it that can't be avoided. What would happen? What would it look like if that weren't the case? Uh, and you don't have, you're free to speculate on what the, the loss of 90% would be based on. But let's just say that happens very suddenly and just is. You know, what does it look like? Who's, who's here? Who's, you know, mm -hmm. where are they? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. 
It's a fairly general speculative sort of question for you, but I, I think in, in, it, it's a good starting point, and I know that you'll fill that in in peculiar, eccentric, individual ways uh, that I you know, don't need to prompt you on. So Yeah, no, I, there we go. I do like the, the generality of it. It's, uh, it's nice that it leaves a lot of space open for using the imagination. Um, so to get into Atlantis, the road to Atlantis as you said. So excited about this. Like I said, I have a pop culture angle on Atlantis, and you do too. I can start off by saying that my introduction to the concept of Atlantis came in the form of a 1992 PC game called Indiana Jones and the Fate mm -hmm. of Atlantis. And it is a, it's a very, by our standards today, a very rudimentary, top-down, point-and-click adventure game with a great story that I remember uh, pretty well. It was one of the first PC games I ever had. And around that same time, there was the animated Disney DreamWorks film Atlantis, in which explorers searched for the strange crystal energy that apparently once powered the Lost City. There were a series of games very much like uh, Myst that was actually called Atlantis. A lot of gaming. There's a lot of gaming. But there are also many, many, many book series, including Da Vinci Code-style adventure books. Uh, in fact, one of your favorite writers, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, wrote an Atlantis story called The Maricot Deep. Um, it's been a fixture of pulp writers' imaginations forever. Robert E. Howard, when writing Cole the Conqueror, uh, had him as an Atlantean, and therefore Conan the Barbarian is a descendant of Atlanteans. H.P. Lovecraft, of course, mentions it. What better writer to seize on that mythology than H.P. Lovecraft? So this has been a fixture of pop culture fascination for quite some time, although I don't really feel, in, in many of my explorations of pop culture's obsession with Atlantis, I don't think that they quite hit on what makes it so fascinating. There's, there's this focus on apocalypse, on something horrible happening, and this, you know, this advanced civilization completely disappearing, and how that could be echoed in our own modern age. but. There's a bit more to it. So this is a huge phenomenon. People, in even in this day and age, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars chasing down leads to attempt to find the mysterious uh, halls of record that contain Christ. texts written by Atlantean clerics before the demise of the city. Um, one is rumored to be under the right foot of the Sphinx, about 30 meters down in a chamber. One is rumored to be in Guatemala, and the other one is in the Bahamas, which most current explore Atlantean explorers do believe that uh, the main island of Atlantis was in the Bahamas. Right, right. Well, look, you, you've sketched out uh, very fairly some of the many reasons why uh, this myth uh, has ingrained itself so fully in world culture, not just Western culture. There are many different angles. 
There are uh, racial angles where Atlantis has been a focal point for uh, different colors of skin in terms of, of mythology and, and, and the past. Uh, it, it has such a richness. I think we could just encapsulate what you've just run down uh, by saying that Atlantis was an enormously uh, fertile uh, franchise idea. Um, it's one of the it, it it's one of the most fertile franchise ideas that that we can think of, um, and it works across so many levels. So it is a great lens to look at the notion of franchise and culture and history and intellectual property in, in very contemporary terms uh, because it remains as fresh and contemporary um, really as, as it was when it was first rolled out by Plato. And um, that is the starting point as far as we know specifically of Atlantis. So maybe that's a good place uh, to start. Um, and I think in doing that, we Plato is so easily dismissed today as uh, being so monolithically important within Western culture that if you in, are in any way inclined to denigrate Western culture, uh, he's one of the names that you, you really have to attack. Uh, probably more so than Shakespeare or Mozart. Uh, I think there's a little bit of reluctance to take on board uh, many of the, the major scientific figures because we kind of feel we might be undermining uh, some convenience and security and hygiene that we're dealing with now. Mm -hmm. Plato seems a little bit more, except because you know he was a philosopher and of course you know, no one understands what philosophy is anymore. So let's uh, let's you know shake his pillars. Um, but he brings up the subject of Atlantis, and one of the the beautiful things about Plato was that he really was a writer, and he was unashamedly bringing together some myths and legends uh, from his own time in the past as a historian and, and creative researcher. But he wasn't at all above, you know, creating some things himself, you know, and that's an important thing for all of us at this moment in history to remember that the idea of history, of people having been earlier, means that they had a chance to have a certain kind of impact that may be a lot harder to have. Uh, and by analogy, for just just checking back with Shakespeare, he contributed more words to the English language as an individual than anyone else. It's very hard for an individual to match that feat today because of the nature of language, society, and sheer population. You know, so Plato was in there early, and it's very interesting. What uh, it's in two dialogues: uh, the Timaeus, which is one of his most important, and which is saying a lot. Um, it's the most peculiar of them all because it deals with origin myths and uh, it really is the most metaphysical uh, and supernatural and magical, mysterious of all his works. Uh, and um, uh, the, the, uh, Critias. the Critias, yeah. yes. Um, but he introduces the notion of Atlantis with a very uh, 
I think, pretty clear rhetorical point of a cautionary tale about a great civilization that overreached itself in terms of nautical exploration and colonization. In other words, uh, naval uh, military endeavors. Um, and he was, you know, really speaking to the Athenian leaders of his day about, you know, let's not overstep uh, Greeks' influence. Uh, you know, let's let's be a little bit. Uh, well, it, it's an argument against hubris, which is you know one of the great uh, cornerstones of, of Greek dramatic tragedy. You know, of of leaders um, exceeding. Uh, the boundaries of humility and, and a, a deadly arrogance, in other words, uh, or a fatal arrogance, let's say. So that was kind of the positioning of uh, what, what he was using uh, Atlantis and the legends of this lost civilization. Because it's not just a lost island, it's not a lost city. That the important thing is it really moves into that, that realm of the lost civilization which is very different than, say, a lost tribe. You know, it, right. it's a much bigger proposition. So that's, I think, the first thing to think about. I like that it's based on, you know, it literally means the island of Atlas. Mm -hmm. And I think the Atlas figure, you know, Atlas is now a tire, and we think of, you know, everyone just, my students, I ask them, you know, what an Atlas was, you know, and they have an idea of, like, well, it's a collection of maps. It's sort of the geographic equivalent of a, meteorological almanac they got that but the idea of who atlas was as a titan you know pre the olympian gods and the you know the figure of atlas holding up the world i mean that in itself is you know it's not tortoises all the way down or turtles all the way down in this case as people may understand that reference it's uh it's this man this titan holding up the world. A very, very interesting, haunting image that we can see in sculpture. Uh, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a motif that, that in itself had a lot of, of uh, legs, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so we have the island of Atlas as this lost civilization that has been destroyed in some cataclysm, whether it be uh, a sea earthquake caused by Poseidon in anger. And interesting that the original king of Atlantis was another atlas, another, well, a half-human atlas, one of the offspring of Poseidon. Um, so there was a, a, a sense not just of this civilization being a, a place, a mythical place on a map, or lost technology or, you know, on that generalized level. There was a sense of, of who the hierarchy was. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. That the, you know, it was presented in terms of a reflective model of Greek society with its leaders who had names and who made decisions and mistakes, you know. So it ties in with his thinking in the Republic you know, his, his, all, his, his great idea is what constitutes the ideal human society. Not what constitutes ideal human behavior. He'd moved beyond that. He was really thinking in social and because of, of the time and the place in the world that he was, he was thinking globally. 
you know, in those days, that was a very global position. Mm-hmm. And, and where better to be the heart of a global vision than the Athens of, you know, uh, three or four hundred years before, yeah. you know, before Christ. So I think it's interesting that there is a sense of who the leaders were, what, what the, how the society was framed, and the other alternative to uh, Atlantis' destruction um, links in more with the Christian idea of the flood. Uh, and so it dovetails in beautifully with a whole bunch of uh, world, you know, mythic motifs, legends, and thinking. Um, but I thought, you know, it, it looks to me in a way that he sketches out the notion of uh, mythologically, because he's very much in that world of, of understanding and, and, and using systems of mythology that mindset that worldview as a way of understanding things he's you know he's got his foot still in one foot still very much in that world it's an allegory for the nature of human history mm-hmm. you know it, it no, and he, the question is was, was is human history something that is inevitable is it, does it just mean the record of what has gone before is it something conscious and intentional that uh Therefore, you know, the ruined temples are the model of, of history. Are we trying to leave behind uh, great ruins? Is that the, the definition of, of a great civilization? When you think about it, it kind of is. Think of the, of the, of the cultures that we apply that, that big word civilization to. You know, they're, they're significant and they have buildings, you know, the, the, and, and they have ruins. You know, the Mayans and the Aztecs enter into that. And um, later in the development of the myth, uh, the connection with uh, the Mesoamerican cultures is really, really important because a lot of uh, Western scientists and anthropologists and uh, explorers and investigators and popular writers tried to deal with the grand nature of the cities of Mexico and Central America and Machu Picchu in Peru. Uh, it, they asked the question, well, how did these cultures do something so radically different in terms of these great cities? Oh, well, it must all connect back to Atlantis. And there's certainly no question that even in uh, Plato's original there is uh, an attempt to to deal with, and let's face it, he's an Athenian Greek. You know, he's trying to deal with the immense uh, legacy and magic of Egypt. You mm. know, mm-hmm. um, and it may be positioned in a different part of the world, but not really, mm-hmm. not really. Mm-hmm. But it it, and I. Just before handing it back to you, I think we should remember that uh, the city of Troy, which is the subject of some crucial aspects of Western mythology and uh, major canon literature, is not at all assured to be a real city. We don't know exactly, you know, the location. It's it's been a subject of investigation archaeologically. Uh, you know, speculatively for you know centuries, um, 
so we're, we're back into a world and a time when it was possible for a civilization to go missing. And underneath the whole mystique of Atlantis is this, I think, haunted sense. And haunted is a crucial word for lost explorers. We've talked about that from the beginning. That, that not just individuals can go missing. Lost explorers. Whole civilizations. Whole civilizations. And in that realization, I think, is the great... Uh, counsel for humility as as humans for not overstepping and in a way this is a great story that we have been telling ourselves and it it, it does indeed filter down to our obsession with post-apocalyptic themes you know and we, we've seen ruined cities and we actually love you know ruined things abandoned shopping malls and derelict amusement parks and on and on and on the fascination for that is a deep realization that uh, things pass away mm -hmm. even greatness you know mm -hmm. even greatness right. so that's a starting point I think right and it makes me think of old mystery cults like the Pythagoreans you'd have to be silent for five years before you were even initiated into the cult and at the center of these cults, there's always the secret with a capital S. Not like the book, not like the Power of Positive Thinking book, but the, the mystery or the secret or the thing that is unknown. And lost civilizations are great external representations of that secret and that mystery. This idea that there are, that some somewhere along the line, people had, sorry, my son is literally choking me right now. Hold on stop cut it out um that people had actually figured this stuff out and that over time through disaster or hubris or what have you go to bed son go to bed that's enough um hold on sorry one second will you go to bed please you're fighting he uh it's funny he actually starts doing like greco-roman wrestling moves on me sometimes when he doesn't want to go to sleep and he just had his uh, his shoulder pressing on my throat pretty intensely. Um, where was I? Right, so it, it's, a, it's a good metaphor for all that. I am curious uh, as to, just because we're speculating here, what is your take on the reality of Atlantis? Do you see it entirely in terms of metaphor and story and mythology? Or do you think that there's some, some truth to its, its reality? I, I think there always has to be some truth in these myths and legends that resonate across cultures because uh, Atlantis, although it may be in, in Plato's terms uh, fixed in one gen fairly general uh, hemisphere, let's say, let's let's keep it at that general level. Uh, it it does you know occur in other cultures in very different parts of the world. For instance, uh, Sundaland, you know, in, in there is a, uh, in the, the Malaysian archipelago sort of area uh, connected with Borneo. And we know through plate tectonics that, you know, things do move around, maybe not on the time scale of, of these, of human development, but 
I, I think that there is some shadow and harmonic of, of reality, objective reality behind all of these if you are fairly, you know, uh, lateral in, in how you interpret that. Um, because I don't think that, that humans culturally find expressions for deep motif needs, but they can't create that out of nothing. Mm. We, we, mm -hmm. It's very hard right. to find a mythology created you know, um, you, you get back to the very general framework of creation myths, origin yeah. myths, yeah. which seem like the Big Bang theory. You know, they, they're kind of, well, something happened out of nothing. And they do, that's, but once past that point, which, which all world cultures that we know share, then things start to get kind of specific. And, and the storytelling instinct does need some details. Right, uh, and, exactly. You know, and, and Plato, um, you know, includes some <coughs> geography as well as, uh, you know, the sociology. Uh, th there's something in that. Uh, and, and bear in mind, you know, how information was, you know, transported and shared then. And, well, how it's done today. Things get, you know, all sorts of, of uh, things get confused. In some ways, you know, we are the myth-making machine, animals, mm -hmm. humans. Mm -hmm. That's what we are. We're, we're constantly doing that. Um, but there's always some little, you know, hint of something in it. And we've talked about that going way back to some of, you know, the silly rumors surrounding various celebrities and urban legends. In quiet little ways, that same thinking is what's... What is, going on on the grand level of the Atlantis myth and, and the big, big, uh, you know, cultural myths of, of world history. So there is something in that. Um, well, there's there's also, you know, so I'm thinking about uh, historians and archaeologists who I follow, whether on Twitter or their blogs or what have you. And archaeology as a discipline, as a science, is a very level-headed one. And they will be quick to point out whenever you bring up something like ancient aliens that that's not what they do, that they just simply deal in facts and they, they don't have time for the nonsense. And on the one hand, I have a lot of respect for that. That is the dominant paradigm of science these days, of, of one of radical skepticism, one of you know making sure that all of your references are cited and, and what have you. But history, in a lot of ways, reminds me. Have you seen these? Uh, these, they're sort of coloring books for children, where it will be a picture of a lion, but parts of the lion are are deleted, are left out, and it's up to the kid to draw the rest of the lion. Um, history is. I, you know what I'm yeah. talking about. Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, I haven't seen the the current ones that are used, but that comes from a very very. Uh, insidious uh program of psychological testing really i think is is yeah it i mean all of these things you know that that get applied to children that seem sort of innocent learning whether they deal with pictures or dolls or whatever a lot of it had to deal with you know the analysis and identification of mental illness really? uh 
Yeah, so that has a very peculiar front end to it uh, or origin in its own right. But I, th I understand exactly what you're saying, and I think that that, in addition to being uh, a beautiful visual uh, alchemical sort of uh, idea and an insidious psychological thing, it is in fact how I think uh, the human cultural minds work. We we are collages in that yeah, sense. Yeah, collages, and so. I like this idea of there being people who are born. I have a friend who listens to the show who has aphantasia, so he ha he can't imagine, say, an apple in his palm. He understands what you mean when you say holding an apple, but he can't visualize it. And I think that science-minded people might have a sort of aphantasia when it comes to speculation. But I think that the myth makers and the storytellers are the, the proper yin to that yang, essentially. And I think they're both very important to understanding how history works, especially once you get into the Fordian uh, idea of sort of uh, not being a, 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 a radical skeptic in the 2022 sense of that word, right? Where you just simply don't believe anything, and if there's no evidence for it, well, then it doesn't exist. Because history is... What's the point in understanding history at all, right? Of course, there's an element of, of, well, isn't it cool that this is how they did things? This is what our ancestors' day-to-day -day lives looked like. But it's also, necessarily, it serves the same function as mythology, which is to, like the Atlantis myth, reflect on where we are right now. And to do that, I think, necessarily, you have to speculate. You have to fill in the blanks with your own interpretation. And that's what that's what makes it interesting to me. Well, the key word is speculate, and I think we need to reflect on on you know what that really means, and to put that into the larger perspective of of human historical development, uh, because many many people in the past were putting forward ideas as speculations. Aristotle is is a good case in point. He might have had a little bit of a didactic writing style. Uh, as a personal, you know, peccadillo, so to speak. But he's not to be blamed for the institutionalization uh, that he was granted by the Middle Ages. A lot of his thinking was, you know, really speculative. And, and he, he did get people thinking. Uh, he wasn't really saying, look, this is the way things are. That's easy to sort of think that now. And you think, well, geez, he was really wrong about that. Let's, let's go back to reading his poetics and ethics. He might have known a little bit more about that than biology. But, you know, there were a lot of really curious, uh, insightful people in the past who were looking around and trying to put pieces together. And fossils are a good example. But, but changes in, in the, the appearance of landmass you know, and they didn't have all of the background and the observations and the records that we have now. So if we take their thinking as speculations rather than assertions, we get a whole different picture. And the beauty of, of you know, they were encouraging us forward to ask questions, to interrogate their thoughts. It's only relatively recently that science has become so rigid and hardened and you know, anti-skeptical, uh, it was such a force of, of exploration and inquiry once. Um, mm -hmm. So that was going on. Um, 
but what I I really um, I I think what is so important about that that word speculate is that uh, at each stage, a crucial stage, it would seem, of human historical development from Plato on, the Atlantis myth finds an audience, finds a purpose, finds a connection. I mean, in the Renaissance, you, you've suddenly got, you know, major naval forces out in the world exploring seeing new land masses, you know, unidentified islands, the whole mystique, magic, and economic worth of maps becomes, you know, magically mainstream and the subject of enormous investment, you know? Mm -hmm. There's nothing worth more than a map. I mean, think about that. We now completely take that for granted. in uh, the 16th century, there's a writer named Francisco Lopez de Gomera who really captured the, how Atlantis worked its way into, and it didn't have to work very hard, into the whole idea of exploring the new world. And mm-hmm. uh, he says, Orbe novo non novo. The new world is not new. Mm. I mean, all he had to do was lay that down and say, look, well, maybe these new discoveries are, in fact, retracing, you know, older roots and that Atlantis really maybe was, you know, some American-based civilization of the past. Let's not be too sure of our knowledge today, you know? And so it gets this enormous reboot of energy um, at the peak, arguably the well, we call it the Renaissance for a reason. At an enormous, fu- you know, flashpoint of intellect, uh, scientific and artistic development, the birth of, of science as we know it. I mean, it's there. Atlantis is there, at the beginning again. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And the uh, the America angle fits in with what Edgar Casey thought. Casey, obviously the one of the most famous psychics in history that I can think of. He was born in 1877, died in the 40s, uh, and he did thousands and thousands and thousands of psychic readings, uh, some really kind of phenomenal stuff, uh, being able to drop into this hypnoti- like hypnotic state and diagnose illnesses or, at times, journey back to the city of Atlantis. And he put it in America. He put it in the Bahamas. And he credits uh, its destruction on, uh, well, its first destruction, because in Casey's reckoning, there were multiple apocalypses having to do with Atlantis. But in 50,000 BC, this culture of people who had, son, stop, stop throwing that. That's enough. Uh, this this culture of people had uh, hot air balloons and dirigibles all sort of all sort of put together by elephant skin and um, basically they had a real problem with wild animals at that time things like woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers it was an advanced civilization but it was one that was still very uh, in conflict with the natural world 
and that uh, was not able to to necessarily, you know, deal with all these animals at the same time. So they basically devised a plan to get these animals and... <sighs> Sorry, Chris. This is a rough day for us right now. Um... <sighs> Stop. He's throwing things all over the place and yelling. He's supposed to be asleep. Go to bed. No. Uh-uh. I don't care. There's a musicality that's intense. He's speaking the language of Atlantis. Yeah, he's speaking the language of Atlantis. He's getting up, and for God's sake, he's throwing a plastic bowl across the room and then going and picking it up and throwing it again. Um, sometimes with kids, you're like, well, you don't speak English. You have no idea what I'm talking about, but it would just be great if you could meet me halfway here and maybe play quietly, maybe not throw things across the room. Here, let's try this. Daddy's trying to talk about the lost city of Atlantis, son. Um, so anyway, the point, the point that, that Casey got to was that they devised some sort of uh, program of blowing these animals up with methane deposits in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, that was something that couldn't be proved at the time. And only recently in the past decade or so has there been evidence found that large methane explosions did in fact take place in the Gulf of Mexico about 50,000 years ago. But the reason why I bring up Casey is not to debate whether or not he was a fraud or real. I personally think it's pretty convincing. Um, but you have to, the, what Casey was doing was actually filling in those gaps to the best of his ability and how much of it was real psychic connection with the distant past and how much of it was just him making stuff up. Um, I like the idea, like many kind of kooky Atlantis explorers, of taking those words at face value and saying, you know what, I actually, I choose to believe that that's true. That connection to the methane gas, that's good enough for me because that would be a tough thing to speculate on to within such a, a, a close time, right? Well, absolutely. And listen, I, you know, I think that uh, we, we need not differentiate, uh, you know, mythological from so, you know, some sort of objective uh, attempt at uh, understanding the world, because we know in advance that that is, is a fraught uh, project. And it's not what our project is. I think the Lost Explorer idea is based on, you know, Gaston Bachelard's, uh, you know, edict that every psychic event has has validity within right. its own frame and i think what we're trying to to make is a really really cool new kind of map not a timeline but a dimensional map that embraces uh psychology cultural development geography the physical world and the mysterious magical immaterial world of ideas and imagination uh, because you, you can't understand human development without that dimension. It mm -hmm. just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that the, the, the leading minds you know, are, have always uh, called us to that. Uh, and some of our heroes, McKenna, William James, you know, we're, we're looking at... Um, my father had a lot of time for Edgar Cayce. I think it was interesting. He introduced me to it and... Um, he actually performed in a one-man play based on Edgar Casey, and mm. uh, the, there was there were other voices that were recorded 
that he was interacting with. It was his only theatrical uh, performance outside, you know, his uh, Sunday sermons when he was a minister. But uh, this was later when he was a weirdo psychologist. But uh, there's something uh, in all of this that can't be dismissed because we were looking at Plato's cautionary tale about the nature of an ideal society and the, the, the problems of colonization, which is, you know, comes up around the world from China to India to the Bantus in Africa. To, you know, it's, a, it's a world global human issue. It isn't just Europe. You know, it is not just Europe at all. And that was one of the reasons why I love, you know, discovering these immense civilizations in the jungles of, of Mexico and, and Central America uh, and parts of South America. And the, the hint that there may be still, you know, some out there. Um, there's a fabulous uh, mythology that I am working to develop into my big novel project about exactly such uh, a kind of civilization, but in the Indian Ocean. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, you can see the, the references to the, the great Indonesian kingdoms uh, when the world of trading and exchange of culture, you know, the, the intrepid Thai traders and the Malaysian pirates were starting out, uh, and the Chinese were still exploring then. Um, and there was this huge uh, movement of people and language. And there was a myth of, of an island that was volcanically destroyed of very advanced uh, civilization with beautiful terraces and kind of Pacific island versions of ziggurats with uh, a kind of Indonesian, um, Sulawesian sort of uh, influence. And the focus of, of, of fascination religiously was on uh, a then uh, living species of giant Komodo dragons, mm. which I think is absolutely fabulous. That's a great you know? image, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's something enormously, uh, not just popular, but something that calls to people around the world in this notion of a lost civilization uh, for political, social, educational reasons, for pure adventure and Indiana Jones type reasons. Um, and then, of course, it's been, Atlantis was, was very much a focal point for uh, notions of racial heritage and authority. Um, the Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists, you know, made a very important feature of Atlantis and, and sort of transposed it into the Hyperboreans, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that had an enormous uh, resonance in, in, in very good ways, interesting ways, but also some very dark ways in terms of the Nazis embracing it. Uh, and then in turn, you know, it's, Atlantis is very, figures very prominently in Afrofuturism, which I think is a really cool uh, you know, line of thought and, and, and mythology. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of literature and music, I mean, we've got some, you know, wonderful proponents of it mingles into the Sun Ra mythology, George Clinton in Parliament. You know, we have returned to reclaim the pyramids. It's Egypt and Atlantis, you know, and they were cultures of black people, you know. So 
the idea that the Nazis would claim some connection with Atlantis, and then we have the West African kingdoms and Afrofuturism in more contemporary times claiming a connection with Atlantis. I mean, it's it's powerful. It's working on so many different levels. No wonder it would uh, become, you know, the subject of, uh, you know, pulp culture in, yeah. in more contemporary times. Right, right. And so your project and all the projects you mentioned are notable for doing exactly what we were talking about, like taking this story that and perhaps suturing some fact into it, uh, but creating their own mythology. My son just closed the door to his room on me. I think he's as tired of me as I am of him. Um, there you go. Um, and I think that, you know, it's still something, that Indiana Jones element that you talked about. I've been sending text pictures to Rios of Guatemalan artifacts unearthed from, you know, Mayan ruins. And because the one of the texts, the Atlantean text, is alleged to be, I believe it's the Piedras Negras Mountains in Guatemala, I was like, hey, this might be a good retirement hobby for us like let's go down to guatemala and and set up shop and and hunt for hunt for these texts we'll find some cool stuff in the process of doing that but as a kid i always wanted to be indiana jones and then life happens and it's sort of like oh okay well i'll be a writer and maybe i'll write some indiana jones style adventures but i'm beginning to get back into this uh lost explorers has been sort of uh, really important in reawakening this in me and saying, no, you know what? I actually I actually do want to go out and explore and speculate and be one of those uh, pseudo-archaeologists that, that quote-unquote uh, official, legitimate archaeologists hate. Where I'm like, I have, I've figured it out and just be bold about it, unequivocating. <laughs> just say like I've taken this idea and I'm shoehorning it into this idea and and this is this is my version I've solved the riddle of Atlantis well look I encourage that totally and you know one thing I would say to people if, if you do have any experience with so-called real archaeologists uh, seek seek that out because the people who really know what they're talking about and people who are fun to hang out with that's a that's an enormous diagnostic about spirit and and heart and and there are some good people there are some you know real fanatics who are uh turf minders and really are just academics with some dust on them but most of the people who are really out doing stuff are pretty cool and they welcome people into that those projects they, they they're quite happy to have volunteer labor i can tell you yeah, uh, yeah, but they right. encourage they encourage archaeology as a mindset and and it can be done on the personal level we all need to do some more personal archaeology both in very physical terms and in psychological terms and that's one of the definite goals of the lost explorer explorers program you know is to to be good archaeologists within our own minds and our own lives because uh, archaeology is is living everything is always living that's what's weird about the ruins and the bones you know mm -hmm. it, it 
it, it's very, that's the insight of, of the archaeology mindset is that it's, it's all still alive at some level. And it, it, the, the trick is to really appreciate that dynamism and to be part of it. Um, but here's a, sort of linking back, I think maybe why the Atlantis myth is so very resonant across the world. Uh, and it does have um, some statement in, in, in later Europeans who followed after Plato. Uh, I'm thinking of Sir Thomas More's uh, enormously influential utopia, which literally means no place. Um, but for the for you know we suddenly have that word utopia and utopian ideals, which become linked to the New World and to America. No surprise that America has a long history from its get go of uh, I, you know idealized utopian communities trying to get going. Um, you know, you and I were talking or exchanging communications uh, during the week about, you know, places like New Harmony. Uh, you know, there are all these communities that, that have started, and America is deeply linked to that idea of, of utopia, which, as we, you know, know, and, and our process of inversion tells us, that instantly suggests dystopia and dystopian visions which are a staple of pop culture. Uh, they have high educational goals, like 1984 and Brave New World. They have pure entertainment goals, you know, uh, The Walking Dead, on and on and on. But then there was also Francis Bacon, not the British artist, but Francis Bacon, who wrote The New Atlantis in 1623. And that is uh, another echo of Plato's Republic, the ideal society. But it really looks at the academy, the idea of, of a university, of a community of learning. And I think with Atlantis, we have a, a formulation of the definition of civilization, hmm. um, which embraces learning, technology, uh, a sociology of, of, of fairness uh, in some way. Not that there isn't some sort of hierarchy. But it's, it's the human mind trying to deal with models of not just small communities, villages, tribal societies, but how to be together and be a part of something that involves greater population and therefore greater capabilities, greater ambitions. What does the nature of ambition look like when you start to get buildings and, and people? Does it look like military conquest and enslavement? That's one model. Does it look like beautiful bridges and terraces and arches and amazing architecture and literature and music and scientific advancement and greater understanding of where we fit into the cosmos? That's the universe, university idea. What a beautiful idea that started off as compared to what a university is, in fact, today, often. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Indoctrination so, facility. Exactly. So we, we really have in Atlantis the proto-vision of the crossroads of what 
a large group of people start looking like, mm. of humanity organizing on levels beyond family, clan, tribe, village, peoples, language groups. We start looking at something uh, bigger. And those, those issues of diversity become challenges within these civilizations. Do the diversities uh, lead to more? Is the whole greater than the sum of its parts? Or is the whole undermined by its parts? So with Atlantis, we have, um, if you exclude the destruction, which is an interesting uh, element to it, it can't be dismissed. Something ended, you know, the civilization, you know, it's not, in, it's not there. It's disappeared. It's not even ruins in the jungle. You know, it's, it's just simply gone. Uh, you still, I think, have this deep uh, echoing sense of what is the human mission, the human destiny, the human possibility when we expand to being uh, numbers. You know, right. are, we, right. are we a crowd or do we approach the, the nature of, of civilization. And uh, it's worth, I'm not going to repeat it here, I, I encourage people to, to investigate this for themselves, but Alfred North Whitehead, who was a very humanist philosopher for being a mathematician, uh, he and uh, Bertrand Russell you know, worked together very effectively. But his five criteria for what constitutes a civilization is, uh, is very interesting. I will say that adventure is one of them, mm-hmm. and I think that's a lost explorer's point that I really take heart in. That, uh, and he, with his great mind, had some very interesting ideas about the nature of adventure. Uh, he was certainly thinking beyond uh, you know, mountain climbing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not that that isn't important. But we have something that just... Um, can't be escaped from in the sense of a dream, a human dream model of what humanity looks like in an organized social sense. And the other thing that I think is is really essential is it's impossible, I challenge anyone to do any research into the idea and legend uh, and tremendous body of work about Atlantis without encountering a map. Mm. It's not possible. It is not possible. You will come across a map. Uh, and the idea of maps is something that we must return to because it's, it's an enormous human magic. Uh, and it's a, it's a constant work in progress. And now we're to a point where, where map reading is, is a lost uh, art, uh, a lost skill, and the idea of making maps is uh, something that confuses people. It's going to be one of the formal workshop ideas that I do at my big art exhibit uh, in Seattle. We've talked about the notion of making matangs, mm-hmm. stick charts, but the whole idea of map making and orientation is so central to human culture globally globally uh, they everyone has different ideas about this and that is one of the defining differences of what 
different cultures are in you know on the level of, of different languages but map making is something that is a part of the whole dream and it's very hard to think of maps and not think of Atlantis at some point. Absolutely. I like the idea of the bigger the civilization, the bigger the ruins, and this idea of moving forward in time and if you can get your civilization to a certain level of colonial dominance and architectural majesty that you might be leaving not just a genetic record, but a mythological record that extends into time. So it's a bit of a immortality quest, right? A big ant colony project towards immortality. It is exactly that. And this ties in very definitely with our earlier discussions about the concept of celebrity and celebrity culture or cults of celebrity that this is happening not on an individual basis, but on a culture basis. Will we be remembered, our collective identity? I mean, collective identity is so talked about today. Well, what does that really mean? In fact, you know, it's, it's not new, you know, as uh, the, the Spanish Renaissance historians said, you know, the new world isn't new, and this obsession with collective identity is certainly not new. Mm -hmm. uh, will we be remembered? How cool will our ruins be? Yeah. You know, right. what questions will people of the future ask? Or you know, whoever comes, you know, yeah. will we have? Will be? Will our artifacts be interesting enough? You so know, somebody finds and, a Captain America Funko Pop. What did this mean? This this yeah. apparently this man, this cave dweller who lived underground and kept all of these bobblehead statues. Were these his gods? Did he? <laughs> well, isn't this the, the, the source of the great self-esteem problem of our time? The emergence of irony as religion, self-effacement and insecurity becoming snarkiness and nihilism, is that, yeah, that is what we're going to leave behind, a rotting Bart Simpson doll. Yeah. In, you know, you know it's, we're, we're, we're not up this to the God standards with a, with a head of the of past. A head of flames. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. We're not up. And we're, you know, and it's, when you were saying what would they think when they, uh, with what they left behind, this segues nicely into my imaginative challenge. So I was um, thinking about this, and we're going to say for, for this challenge... And by the way, we can go back to whatever you want to talk about. I just think it's a nice segue. Um, I was thinking for this one it wouldn't be nuclear holocaust because that would be too... I mean, we've seen that done, right? Mutants trolling yeah. the wasteland and, you know, people with, you know, three legs and Mad Max and things like that. So that's been done. Well, I will, I will actually go a semi-spiritual route and say that this is kind of a reverse rapture where instead of uh, chosen people, a few chosen people being, you know, whipped out of their clothes and up into heaven, uh, every 90% of the population was instead. And nobody can figure out why it's, you know, again, to bring up the Captain America thing, it's a kind of Thanos finger snap situation where people are just gone. So the first thing, obviously, would be that people would have to learn how to cope with this mentally. Um, there would be, but I'm beginning to find that the way that people deal with tragedy on a large scale, such as 
the recent COVID-19 pandemic is that they just, they're remarkably resilient and they sort of just adapt. Now COVID is endemic and people get it all the time. And it's just saying like something like you have the flu, you know, ignoring, what is it? Millions of people who died from COVID. Um, so I believe that people would move on from that, right? But then I was listening the other day to uh, a Buddhist teacher who was talking about a friend of his, a, a shaman in Nigeria, I believe, West Africa at least, who came to America, uh, was getting his doctorate, and was talking with this Buddhist monk. And he said that when he, in, in his country, they have very strong death rites. Uh, weeks, sometimes months long episodes of public mourning where you're allowed to let it all out. And of course, in America, we don't really have that. The closest I think I've seen is videos of black funerals, particularly in the South with lots of, you know, wailing and grieving and bands playing. But he told the Buddhist monk that when he showed up to America, he was just startled because he said, you guys can't see it. Like your streets are just lined with the unmourned dead. So I think that what nice yeah in this in this particular scenario, I think that the people who are left over at least in the beginning uh, would form very strong relationships with the dead, and we might actually see sects of people, tribes of people, maybe even civilizations of people that are specifically linked to, and their their power is derived is is derived from their ability to communicate with with the dead and to properly move us on as a species away from this event there are practical things that you'd have to worry about i mean power grids would obviously go down again just for the sake of convenience i'm going to leave out the nuclear reactors that would certainly melt down and cause cause problems we'll just we'll say that of the 10 percent that remains the nuclear reactors are still there so there's still some power, but not a ton of power. The infrastructure for a lot of this power will go away. So phones are gone. Uh, the internet is mostly gone, except for the way that we used to have it when I was a kid, where a library, for example, would have a computer and you'd have to schedule an appointment to use it for 30 minutes. Um, but yeah, I think that what we would move toward would be the inverse of what American culture is today, which is concerned mostly with hiding the dead and, you know, taking our fear of death and, uh, you know, burying it under booze and entertainment and social media and things like that. I think, I think people would have to strengthen that relationship to it because they would be living in, in modern ruins. And as a parting thought, I would be interested to see what would happen because you mentioned abandoned malls earlier. I wonder how much, uh, how much people would perhaps forget. Because I'm reminded of uh, Zoomers these days being introduced to rotary phones and trying to figure out how they worked. So it wouldn't take very long for exploration to take root yet again and for people to be, you know, going through shopping malls or abandoned, abandoned uh, you know, auto car dealerships that's the word i'm looking for car dealerships or uh, office buildings or what have you so i think an intense urban exploration and 
a spirituality that is specifically rooted in the material fact of this this massive disappearance. Oh, and one last side note, of course, um, a lot of climate issues would reverse, but I wonder with that much of a rapid change, if it wouldn't be a more radical reversing type thing, if we might go into an ice age or something like that, because all of a sudden, you know, the earth is kind of, uh, maybe if you think about it like, a, like an alcoholic or a smoker whose you know, lungs are blackened or who will go into the DTs if they don't have their morning drink, um, I wonder if the climate wouldn't do something similar. So a lot going on there, but that's, that's the stuff that came to me. Oh, there is a lot going on there. Um, well, here are some things that I thought that was very, very interesting on, on multiple levels. Uh, a couple of things uh, I picked out to pursue uh, next episode or in future episodes. They're, they're very big. Uh, you've, you've touched on in the past the, the denial of death and how we're managing death in modern times, how that has shifted. And I think that really, really is important on multiple levels. Um, communication with the dead is, is a vital uh, subject for, for discussion, how we even think about that, uh, how we, we manage it. We hear a lot about death. We talk a lot about death. Fewer people actually see dead bodies uh, we think really very, very abstractly about death, honestly, relative to people only a short while ago, which I think is uh, really important. Um, I'd like to pursue the notion of how we deal with death and in terms of memory and history uh, in the future, because I think forgetfulness, amnesia, is a kind of death. I think there's a relationship between there. But certainly how we are communicating with the dead, uh, as in humanity in the past, is, is a vital question for, for today. It's, it's working its way into many different discussions, and I think it really needs a lot of focus. Um, I think the climate change issues of today also need to be put into a mythological frame because yeah. those concerns have been around for a long time. And I think that, that one predates the other, and we need to appreciate that. Um, that one of the reasons why there is uh, resonance, because I don't think it is very uh, forensic and detailed in many people's minds. I think it's, it's still on an abstract level because we're still asking governments and corporations to make changes rather than individual family you know, roofline level changes. Uh, heaven forbid we should actually have to change our lives. Right. Uh, right. But I think there is, it's hard to ignore, you know, mythologies of, of great floods and cataclysms. And the, you know, the, the scientific mythologies of visualized ice ages. You know, I've got these beautiful illustrations of woolly mammoths and stuff and giant ground sloths and they become cartoons in a Pixar sort of sense. So the, the mythological approach to uh, climate or enormous physical cataclysm is, is something that is part of the human dream from the beginning. And we need to, I think, put our current concerns, and, and not saying in any way they aren't dire and, and very real and you know, scientifically authenticated in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, but they still have a mythological frame that we... we get back to. 
Um, here are a couple of other angles to, to pursue for next time on this because I think they are, uh, there's certainly more to be talked about in terms of the pulp literature, pop culture uh, versions of Atlantis. But I think there are two major postmodernist writers that look at the lost cities or ancient cities ideas. Uh, William Burroughs, you know, Cities of the Red Knight, perhaps mm -hmm. his most coherent body of work, the trilogy of novels, and Italo Calvino's beautiful Invisible Cities, which Ooh, I think is one of Yeah. Oh, that's just spectacular. And another thing which I'd like to explore, just because I think it's absolutely so cool, is Fordlandia, Henry Ford's peculiar, immensely peculiar, uh, now lost city, which still exists in uh, the jungles of uh, uh, a district in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a very, very odd thing. For, for listeners who want to get a heads up on that Fordlandia, many people would know about it. Uh, it just is, it's very, very odd. And it says something about the mythology of the modern age um, in a way that, that I think is just, almost perfect and it, it resonates across so many different film treatments and, and literary imaginings and it, it's a real thing you know um, and it was done you know relatively you know in, in relatively recent times so uh, Fordlandia and the jungles of Brazil but I think that was a good start on a major myth uh, and it's a way of prosecuting the the notion of to what extent the modern age even really exists because it is a myth that extends all the way back to the time of Plato. So we're looking at, you know, 400 years BC. So it's, it, it's something that, that has real dimensional time traveling capability. And it does for, for many reasons, not just one, as we've begun to explore. Awesome. Yeah, I'll look into all of those so we've, we've got Burroughs, we've got Fordlandia, and then right there in the middle, what was the middle one that you mentioned? Calvino's Invisible that's right, Cities. That's right, that's right, that's right. And that's the one that I'm actually the most familiar with, but I'll, it's a short book. I'll take another look at it. And so beautifully written. We might do some readings aloud from it because it's just, uh, his, his prose is just so lyrical and inspiring. Um, and one of our goals is just to promote great writing and great thinking. So, uh, but I think that is a, a relevant touchstone for next time. Um, so here's our tool, and I'm picking this up on uh, you uh, without any uh, guidance or direction or heads up. You you laid the groundwork for this. One of the ideas I put forward in. Um, we have our psychic defense manual coming up. Then we have the Lost Explorers Handbook. Uh, but I, I put this forward in terms of my, my teaching and my workshops. Uh, the notion of the language that we speak, the words that come out of our mouths, if we experiment a little bit with that, we can change our thinking. That, that in fact, is one of the most effective and totally free ways that we can you know take control of our language david was earlier talking about you know in terms of, of ancient lost civilizations the the magical romantic 
uh, vanished technology of, you know, dirigibles made of elephant skins, you know, and things made of mastodons. And uh, I was talking about, you know, these high priests of proto-science uh, engaged with giant versions of Komodo dragons. If you just experiment with some of this wonderful body of language, which comes out of adventure literature, the literature of exploration, the literature of fantasy, the literature of imagination, uh, whether it be high art or pulp, uh, it's fun. The words are fun to say, but it's a very, very good discipline for people who um, say you're not very uh, hard science engineering inclined. Well, try to use some words from those word, worlds. Try to get that vocabulary, not just into your head, but coming out of your mouth. If you're very hardline, rigid, positivist, determinist, materialist, science-based, well, you're probably not listening to us now. But if you're inclined that way, try to incorporate some of the vocabulary from the worlds of alchemy and magic. Uh, and use different words to expand your thinking because just by using a few simple vocabulary you start to change the field of your mind you really do you know just say aloud dirigibles made of elephant skins you know your, your mind changes shape with that and if you do this as a discipline practice as a joyful discipline I guarantee you, you'll have more fun. Uh, your eyes will light up. I mean, say this aloud, off the coast of Dakar. Yeah. I mean, you just can't say that. Even if you're in Dakar, you can't say that and not feel good, you know? Or like, and, Tomb and, of the Giants. Yeah. Let yourself have some fun. Be a lost explorer. Find that within yourself and use some of that rich vocabulary that the world has so graciously given us. And you'll step free of the 7-Eleven mundane routine world and start to see some magic and some possibilities of exploration. And things will be more adventurous, you know? You can have an adventure going to the Albertson store shopping you know if you have that mindset you know it's in your mind where the change has to happen and language is a good way to help and encourage that movement forward outward and inward too um, so here's my tip which builds on this but which is again very very simple and practical and I am going to use a very personal uh, analogy metaphor but I think you will get the point I'm heavily into my blowgunning practice now and I have I'm learning some things on multiple levels but Dave and I started talking at the very very first episodes we were interrogating the large conceptual notion of frames both physical frames, conceptual frames, philosophical frames, emotional, psychological frames. It's one of the biggest human ideas there is. And it's vision-based. It's vision-based, where we focus. But I have found that in, in painting my 
uh, practice blowgunning targets because I'm, I'm, I'm shooting a lot, so I'm going through them a lot. Uh, I have moved from circular designs, you know, the mandala circular target idea, which I've inherited. I, you know, we didn't invent that. That's a cultural creation that's been given to me. It's a gift from the past. I've moved from that to nested triangles, nested triangles. Now, I can tell you there is a shift of mind. It's a subtle shift. I'm not necessarily able to articulate what the effects or influences are, but that's not the point. Not everything has to be articulated to be meaningful, you know? It, it, it would be more on a musical change of mind. It's like changing the scale from the pentatonic scale to the pygmy scale or, you know, whatever. It, changes don't have to be easily explained to be significant. And in just shifting from circles, you know, rippling circles, concentric circles is the, you know, the, the archetypal target idea. I've moved to nested triangles and I notice a shift of mind. And I propose that that can be uh, analogously applied to our lives in multiple ways. Shift the frames, redraw the frames. Think about things in that different way. Our whole project here is how we can enrich our minds and expand the possibilities for enjoyment and engagement with this life that we are given by simple things that are under control. You know, sometimes we have to buy some things to do that, but not always. I'm trying to focus on things that we can do for free in, in our own lives. You can change some words that come out of your mouth. You can redraw, figuratively or literally, some frames within your life. Um, so that, uh, that's my tool and my tip. And uh, my dream was a sort of map based. I was driving around the back of Lake Mead, which very quickly becomes like, you know, a prehistoric world or a lost planet. You know, that's why I'm here. Because <laughs> I want to imagine I'm, you know, on the moon or Mars or somewhere else. Or, you know, this is where all the, the, uh, the films were shot, if we wanted to suggest, you know, astronauts crashing on another planet. And, um... I, I pull over at this sort of trailhead and there is a map that is, is holding up pretty well. No one's smashed the glass or thrown soda on it or, you know, it's drying out a little bit in the sun. But it has this statement. It says, you are here. You know, that's often what's said. And I, I'm looking at it. And I think to myself, I'm going to take a picture of that just because this is a really nice visualization, you know, in real life, you know, within my dream of, of a statement that is very, uh, well, it's a real assertion. You are here. I mean, if we really thought about that, uh, I, I, I don't know. Let the celebration begin, you know. Um, and I'm looking at it. And then the letters started talking to me and they go, you are here, aren't you? I'm so glad you're here. I've been waiting for you. And I started at first to laugh, but the voice was this beautiful sort of 
it wasn't at all like an AI sort of Siri sort of voice. I couldn't tell you exactly the gender, but it wasn't manipulatively ungendered. It was a voice of melancholy of, I'm so glad you're here because the implication was, you know, whatever, whoever was speaking had been alone until I arrived. And I woke up with this sense of, you know, so often we feel alone or ignored or, you know, when we want to have that telephone chat with an important friend, they're not available or they'll ring us back or, you know, we forget that the, the world, the presence behind, just out of sight, you know, may be lonely and needs our attention, our engagement. You know, it's always about us. And if we think about that just a little bit, you know, that there is a voice, you know, coming from behind the world. And that is a very, very old idea that predates any sort of notion of formalized religion in any way. It's one of the oldest human dreams there is. But the take out, I think, is that we're, we're here for a reason. And part of that reason is to validate the presence of others.